to even imagine what would it be like in all of eternity just to be unhindered and to know God as the scripture says, to see him face to face and to know him as we are already known. I mean, it's really amazing to think about. And, and we need some imagination when it comes to our life uh, as we're walking through this earth. We need some creativity, if you will, of understanding uh, what are the things that are coming our way when all we see sometimes are either the mundane or can be the scary or the unexplainable, the things that we just can't wrap our heads around. And so the Lord allows us to have these times or these seasons, if you will, of waiting for a better promise, waiting for a better future. But the tension in that is that um, we still have a life to live now. We don't just jump ahead and get there. It's in his timing and in his way. And so we're, if we're not careful, we might think, well, the time that I'm just kind of spinning my wheels or it doesn't feel like it's counting a whole lot or we get a little bit forward and you take two steps back and that, that none of that counts because it's not real worship. I'm not in his presence. I'm not lost in all eternity to just kind of lay down before him and bow before him. But, but as, as Gus just led us in prayer and everything, what we're doing now, the life that we're living now is a practice, if you will, but it is current worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. But does it always feel like that? I don't, I'm, I'm not having one of those, you know, experiences this week where I feel like every step I take is in the will of God and he's so pleased with everything I'm doing and all that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a little bit more along the lines of, yeah, it feels like existence sometimes. And then there's other times where you're going like, okay, that, that connected, I noticed him, I felt him or all those kinds of things. But, but that's what tires people out is always needing that experience and trying to chase that. And then what we do is we say, well, if, if I'm not feeling that, then God must be disconnected from me, displeased with me, removed from me. But our lives are lives of worship. And sometimes it feels like an obvious connection and sometimes it doesn't. The, the point I'm trying to make is something that we've been seeing in John chapter four, and we're going to dip into that story again this week a little bit, but we're kind of hitting the pause button on the story with, with Jesus and the woman at the well. And the reason why we're doing that is because I think sometimes we take the obvious truths in life, in life and, and the obvious truths from scripture, and we're so familiar with them that we forget the depth behind those obvious truths. And sometimes you and I don't take the time to let them kind of marinate our hearts these truths that are meant to encourage us and to replant us, rebuild us and, and rejuvenate us. And sometimes we skip over some of these things. We assume too much or we've grown a little callous towards the depth of some of these truths. And even though we're going to hit the pause button and make some very simple kind of basic observations, I know that's what you've come to expect from me. You don't have to say it out loud. That wasn't very kind. I'm just kidding. You didn't. Just making sure you guys are here. Everyone's here. All right. I see lots of people. Great. And I know there's even more watching from home this week. There's kind of buzzing around going, okay, I think someone's got the Rona and all this kind of stuff. So, so there's a lot of people watching from home and all that sort of stuff. We're rolling with our punches. We're taking it as it comes. All those other cliches that everyone's been saying for a year, we finally get to say. So we'll see how it goes. But here's the obvious truth that is living below, if you will, or underpinning, I think Jesus' interaction with this woman is that you and I need to know who God is. Again, you guys might say, no, duh. What are we paying this guy for? He needs to come at it with something a little bit harder, a little bit more direct than that. But the reason my point is this, is that the things that we would be tempted to say no, duh, to are the things that we have a tendency to gloss over. And we, we think we hear a message like we need to know God and we know a bunch of people out there that need to hear that. And we put ourselves in the category so often as I know him. I've been introduced or I've, I've come along the way or I've gone through a journey. I know him. I don't feel like this message is really for me. But this is the whole point is that if we don't see what Jesus is up to with this woman at the well, we are going to take a lot of truths for granted. It's, we're going to do what we have a tendency to do in our humanity, which is kind of gloss over the things that were meant for us and we apply them for somebody else. We need to know who God is and what we will do if we have a knowledge gap, because I don't know about you, but I don't know everything. 
There's a few things I'm still trying to learn. There's a lot of things that I don't quite. So when I don't have the truth of something, I have a tendency to fill that void with something negative. Let me illustrate for you. I, I've been a smartphone user now for a while, but I was never an iPhone user. And there is this feature in the iPhone that I'm not real excited about when I got one. And that's now I know that you're thinking about getting back to me. You're, you're, you're typing something or considering typing me something and I'm anticipating this response. And sometimes it comes and sometimes it doesn't. If, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about here. You iPhone users do. So if I send, uh, I'm going to pick on Gus. If I send Gus a message and usually our exchanges are stupid gifts, you know, dumb little pictures and stupid quotes that add no value to life. I'm saying that out loud, Gus, so you change your ways. I'm just saying. And, um, just grow up already, okay? Um, mine are worse, but... So I send something to him, and I see the dots because he's thinking or he's typing or whatever. Well, I don't know if you've experienced this. Sometimes it never comes. Sometimes the dots go away, and you're like, what gives? Now, now I'm not important enough to reply to? In that knowledge gap, I will fill that, as I think we all do, I'm going to exaggerate the point here, but I will fill that with the negative. I I won't sit there and say to give him the benefit of the doubt. Oh, Gus is taking some time to pray for me and he's praying for my family. And since I have so many kids, he's just going down the line and he's on his knees, pouring his heart out to God and everything. I think, what, did he get distracted? What, am I not important enough for him to get back to or something? I'm not thinking the best about what could be on the other side. Maybe... You know, one of the kids, I don't don't know, Gus's kids are pretty active and stuff. So maybe they came in and body slammed him or something. I don't know what's going on there, but I make it about me. How come you didn't get back to me? How come I distort what might be the truth because I don't understand the full situation. When I say that you and I need to know God, what I'm getting at is we know that God is true. We know that he has revealed himself both in the person of Jesus Christ and the pages of scripture And the further away we become with being acquainted to that truth, we will fill the gap between what we see going on in the world, what we see going on in our life. And we will say things and believe things about God that may in fact not be true. Because our starting position is usually one of, you know, someone's not taking care of me or someone's not looking out for me. So God may be up to things. We know that he's permissible. We know that he's, he is uh, the sender and the sovereign God and all these things that we might make our conclusions about him in a vacuum of knowledge, in a, in a gap of knowledge where there's just something we don't know about him and we've jumped to the wrong conclusion. Our lives get off center when we grow ignorant of the truth of who God really is. Let's put it this way. If you get truth wrong, you get life wrong. And what do we see going on all around us is that truth is up for grabs. Truth is self-defined. Truth is self-applied. And your truth may not be my truth. And so when we buy into that philosophy, when we operate our lives based on it, what we've come to find out is that we aren't really good uh, leaders of our own lives. So when we get truth wrong, when we don't see that truth is bigger than any of our own definitions and bigger than any of our own comprehensions, that it belongs to the one who never changes, it belongs to the one who never fails, life gets out of whack, to use the expression of the 90s. I just realized that when I said that out loud. Anybody say whack anymore? Listen, this is not because we don't have the resources to know who God is. You and I can pursue the truth of God in any way and in any form that we wish. We are not starving for resources along these lines. What often gets in our way of the pursuit of the truth of who God is, is the thing that comes from within us, this desire or hunger or passion. And this is what Jesus says to the woman at the well. He says that those who worship him will worship in spirit, that it will come from the core of them, that it will become this life's pursuit or this passion. And sometimes when we get kind of lulled into the the circumstances of our lives or we get lulled into the the mundane the repetitiveness of our jobs or our family routines or something that desire that passion starts to shrink and it starts to go out 
So Jesus says to her, he says, the hour is coming in John chapter four, verse 23. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. Remember, this is a woman who doesn't think these opportunities come her way anymore. She's blown it. She's been in way too many failed relationships. She's making concessions on things that she shouldn't be now. And everybody else that claims to be closest to God has done nothing but judge her and made her an outcast. So now the very God, Jesus himself, comes and, he, and he's speaking to her personally. And he's saying the Father is looking for people who would be willing to have them their true selves exposed. Remember when Jesus says, go find your husband? She goes, I don't have one. He goes, continue. I know you don't have one. You've had five. The one that you have now is in a exchange, a give and take bartering kind of relationship. There isn't any commitment to this. I know. I know what's going on. I see you. So she sees that the, the jig is up in a sense. She knows that she's being called on the carpet and she decides, as we'll see here going forward, Lord willing, next week, is that she allows the viewing, the gaze of the Lord to see into the window of her soul and to call it out, to lay out that truth for, imagine changing places with her and saying, that was my story. I'm at the well. Somebody happened to be listening. They're writing it down. And for thousands of years, everyone's going to know my business. This is what she's giving us in this example here, this vulnerability, if you will. She's laying it down before the Father, and Jesus says, it is those, of, uh, it is those that are willing to be humble and to, and to have their hearts exposed are the ones that would be the true worshipers. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is immaterial. He is everywhere. She's saying, well, we heard it was supposed to be, you're supposed to worship on this mountain. The Jews said we're supposed to be over here. We don't know which way to go. We don't know who's right. Can you sort this out for us? And he says, God is spirit. God is everywhere. And and he's not confined to just one place. And that Jesus being the true center of worship says that those who are going to worship him are going to worship wherever they are. This isn't an excuse for us to never have to go to church. He's saying that because God is everywhere, our worship should carry everywhere as well. That's what it means to worship him in spirit is from that core and knowing that he is always present, but also to worship him in truth. Remember, we said there's a couple of facets to worshiping God in truth. There's two sides of the same coin, if you will. And, and last time we really looked at one side because uh, this is what this woman was, was bearing for us is that she was allowing the truth of who she was and all of her sin and all of her failure and everything to be out there and for us to see whether or not she was going to be humble about it instead of trying to justify it. Oh, it's not really my fault. You know, all these guys took advantage of me. It's not really my fault. I wasn't raised in a blah, blah, blah. There might've been all these extenuating circumstances, but we don't see her playing that card at all we see her broken before the lord we see her humble before the conviction of the spirit and so she is true about herself which is a key or a step towards true worship if we're true to ourselves, like everyone's telling us to be, just be true to yourself. Just set yourself up as your own authority. Just make sure that you're comfortable in your own skin. You just look yourself in the mirror and just be true to yourself. We know that that's a short-lived endeavor because after a while we're going, I can't keep straight of what I like today versus what I need tomorrow or any of those sorts of things. I'm a bad governor in my life. So being true to myself isn't my ultimate goal, what is, what is helpful in this process to be a true worshiper of Jesus is to be true about myself. How badly I'm in need of his rescue, how badly I'm in need of his saving. And this is what she's putting on display for us. Well, Jesus is also putting on a truth or putting a truth on display for us. And that is a truth about who God is. This woman's never met God. She's never seen him face to face. And yet now she does. What are we seeing in Jesus that would tell us about who God is? He's already said that God is spirit. He's immaterial. And yet I'm physically here with you, but I am, I am the center of worship. So God as a spirit is to be worshiped everywhere. And it begins with me. 
He's already told Nicodemus that he's the new birth. You don't get into the kingdom just by earning it or doing more. You're, you're birthed anew into the spirit or by the spirit, I should say. He's already said on the living water, this is how his conversation started with her, that I'm the true supply of joy, but he's packaging it for her. This woman has heard about God. She knew a few things about worship location and some of the controversies. So she had her perception of God, but she had a knowledge gap. She had this huge vacuum that she was filling it in with the negative. I don't qualify to worship God. I'm not, I'm not clean enough or pure enough to be accepted by God. Or I don't worship at the right location because we're supposed to be in Jerusalem. So we've heard and all these things. Everything she didn't know about God, she was allowing her own thoughts and the pressure of her culture and everything to fill in her truth, quote unquote, about who God is. Now Jesus comes and he starts really messing with her picture of God. Because he's reaching down to her. He's compassionate. He's all knowing. So he says to her, I know your situation. I know the track record. He's patient with her. He doesn't come out and say, so you disgust me and all these people that have judged you were right. So you have no shot at the kingdom. He's patient. He, he, he meets her in her sin without accepting her sin. And we even get a sense, even though Jesus is going to put it on greater display by forgiving her sins, but we even get a sense in the conversation that we've covered so far that God is a God of justice, which we know from the Old Testament. It seems like all we've ever pictured of God is a God of justice and judgment. But even Jesus in his conversation with her about where to worship says, you're, you're, you're worshiping in ignorance. You don't have the full picture. You don't understand all that has been said because you and your people have closed the book after the first five books of the Bible. There was so much more that the Lord is prophesying and you missed it all. So because God is a God of justice, he doesn't just gloss over it like you and I do. We, we want to favor the people that we want to like us. And if they don't have it all right or they haven't figured it all out or something or they do a few, we're like, hey. We're not going to rock the boat. We're just getting back on track here. Or things are going smooth. I don't really want to call this out. Jesus says, no, we got to still stand up for truth. We got to correct the errors. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's helping her and us and anybody else that was aware of the story understand something true about God. And that is the God of the Old Testament did not morph or change his mind into something new that the, the more marketable, kinder, compassionate side of him is seen in Jesus. And uh, judgy, uh, angry, fire and brimstone, thunder shaking the mountains, God, he's kind of put that whole mode behind him now. He's no longer that guy. And this is what we would be tempted to think. This is what we're hearing the most from people around us that are okay with the example of Jesus is, don't you think that's the, that's the religion you want to propagate the most? Don't you think that's the gospel that you want to follow is the one that doesn't do all the fire and brimstone or all the right and wrong stuff or all the judgment stuff? No, it's the one who's just kind and compassionate, has conversations with women who are the outcast, all those kinds of things. And so if we have a vacuum or if we have a gap, I should say, a gap of our knowledge of who the truth of God is, we'll start to believe these things about Jesus. The reality is Jesus is the expression of who God has always been. He's always been compassionate. He's always been loving. He's always been true. He's always been consistent with his character, all of those things. And Jesus is just the actual expression that we can, we can take in and we can believe because we see it right before our eyes. So what we're going to do is we're going to, we're, we're only looking at those two verses, verses 23 and 24 this morning in our text. And we'll use some other areas to support what we're talking about here. But I want us to just hit the pause button on this because we have to understand two essential realities. These are the basics that you and I might be tempted to say, yeah, I know that. Why do we need to camp on this more? But I think it's important for us to see that these essential realities are the underpinning of what Jesus is doing with this woman and all conversations he has with all sinners and all the lost going forward. And those two simple truths are this. Be prepared to roll your eyes at how basic this is. God is truth and God is love, right? Okay, 
That's why people go to school to study the Bible, to come up with brilliant extractions like this. That God is true to himself. But if I don't allow myself to take that off the shelf once in a while, if I don't allow my heart to kind of be marinated in that concept or in that truth, I will, I will misinterpret the things that are going on in my life as though somehow this one got away from God. As though somehow this is meant to trick me into something else. But God is always true. That he allows and sends the things into our life out of a position and a place of love. If we don't camp on this from time to time, we miss the big picture. We could read into this story, this interaction, some of the ways that he talked to this woman and how she responded to him. And we'd be like, why did he do that? But if we see it from a place of he's consistent with truth because he is truth. And he always does what he does from a place in a position of love. It'll make greater sense to us. Truth is consistent with the character of God. We know that he is our rightness. We would say he's our righteousness. He is our purity. And he's untainted. So he never has an angle that he isn't upfront about. He never has a motive that is tricking us into something else. This is how mankind operates. We always have a layer of deception. We're always angling for what can I get out of this? God is just front and center because of his purity. There's nothing to to speculate about him that I wonder what he could be up to and is this just in it for him? It's always in it for his glory and for our good. He's always that pure. It's difficult for us to believe this though because we see ourselves we see each other as the measuring stick to our purity or our goodness you can look around the room this morning or you can get out and work this week or you can go home and you can say well i wouldn't have done it that way or i wouldn't have said that or even if i did that exactly what i'm condemning the other person i had better reason than they had we use each other as a measuring stick for our righteousness our goodness our our pass fail kind of test But Jesus is the only one. He is the true measuring stick. His purity, his righteousness is what we compare ourselves to. And this is what this woman had for an opportunity. And she found herself coming up short, very, very short. Truth is consistent with God's character because he's holy. We have a picture of holiness. We expect it to be dressed in robes and in the paintings with glow around the head and all this kind of stuff. And all of that helps us kind of wrap our head around what holiness is. But the reality is holy just simply means, excuse me, altogether. Give me a second. It's not the Rona, I promise. Am I there? CVS told me it wasn't, so there you go. That God is holy. He is altogether different. We use this word a lot in the last year and we talked about how that makes God unique. Outside of our normal experience, outside of our normal comprehension. Why? Because everything about him is different than everything else. He is holy, pure, and perfect all the time. This is what it means for God's character to be truth. Even James tells us in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, James warns us not to be deceived because every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Your version might say um, that there is no variation or shadow of turning. That God's character is consistent. It doesn't flop around. He doesn't go, you know, I was going to do this, but instead I've changed my mind. I'm going to do this instead because I wasn't seeing the full picture as you and I would be forced to do. That every good gift, everything that happens in our lives comes from a place of the truth of his character because he is always consistent and sees it before it even plays out. And we can trust that that which comes from him is coming from that position of truth. But also there's a consistency with his conduct. If we're being honest, as we look through the pages of scripture and several people have challenged uh, me over this, uh, uh, me on this over the years and stuff about, I've made a statement um, a a lot, especially in speaking to, to certain women and stuff about the fact that God has always had a heart for the disadvantaged and the underdog. 
And a lot of times, uh, women in particular being in our society today and with all of the things that we're wrestling with and whether or not we're, um, you know, supposed to be thinking in terms of feminism or any of those complementarianism, all those other kinds of debates and considerations that we have, all of our entertainment once it gets on a, a hobby horse is just cramming it down our throat left and right and everything. And people are having a hard time wrapping their heads around the fact that God would always be for the underdog or always be for the victim when they see in history how women had been treated, especially in biblical times. Now, our message this morning isn't about the debates of feminism or complementarianism or any of those other sorts of things, but I think it highlights a very specific um, problem that we have is that culture would define our gospel based on its experience and have a gap of the knowledge of who God really is, how what the truth of who he is, and how he's conducted himself to his creation throughout history. So to help us with that just a little bit, I just want to uh, quote from an article that I found very helpful from the Gospel Coalition. Uh, this is uh, from Rebecca McLaughlin, and she writes an article titled, Jesus Changed Everything for Women. Again, not the point of the message, but it's important for how you, how you receive what I'm about to read. If, if uh, Well, let me just put it this way. Sometimes I find myself hearing truths that I've known forever, but I get so saturated with the culture around me that I kind of go, oh yeah, I forgot that God was right about this. I don't know if that resonates with any of you. Here's what she writes. She says, historian Tom Holland stopped believing in the Bible as a boy. He was far more attracted to Greek and Roman gods than to the crucified hero of the Christian faith. But after years of research, Holland has concluded in his book, Dominion, that even secular Westerners are deeply shaped by Christianity. And a lot of us would say, yeah, that's true. But sometimes, or at least the way that that we're getting the shake in the world, is that it's a negative influence from Christianity. She continues, in particular, he argues, people on all sides of today's debates about gender and sexuality depend on Christian ideas. That might be shocking because we hear that Christian ideas are the hindrance to all of these discussions and debates. So she continues that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth. A Roman would have laughed at it to campaign against discrimination on the grounds of gender or sexuality. However, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing in a common assumption. What was that assumption that everyone possessed an inherent worth? The origins of this principle lay not in the French revolution nor in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. In Greco-Roman thinking, men were superior to women, and physical conquest was a way to prove it. As captured cities were to the swords of the legions, so the bodies of those used physically were to the Roman man. Holland wrote, the idea that every woman had the right to choose what happened to her body, that was laughable. Christianity, however, throughout this model, rather than being seen as inferior to men, women were equally made in God's image. Rather than being free to use slaves and prostitutes of either sex, men were expected to be faithful to one wife or to live in celibate singleness. The Christian husband was to love his wife as Christ loved the church. The relative weakness of her body wasn't some license for domination, but a reason to show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life in 1 Peter 3. Now, from my own experience, anytime I've taught or counseled through 1 Peter 3, there's been a reluctance or a hesitancy in in my position to want to sound a little bit relevant to the times and try to imagine the ears of the woman hearing what Peter says when he says that even if your husbands are being an absolute punk before God, even if they are being disobedient to the will of God is what Peter says, do not try to win him over with your words, but instead your chaste and respectful behavior as though you're doing it for the Lord and not for him. And that sounds incredibly unwoke. It sounds completely archaic. It sounds like you're telling a woman you need to go home and get back in the kitchen and cook better and clean better and shut your mouth. That's what 
society is interpreting this. But in the time in which it was said and written, it was an elevation to women in the society in which they were living because they weren't seen as equal to men. We've taken a few things for granted since then. While Roman families often married off their, married off their prepubescent daughters, Christian women could marry later. A woman whose husband had died was affirmed in remaining single, but also free to marry any man she wished so long as he belonged to the Lord. So no wonder Christianity was so attractive to women. Jesus had changed everything. We wouldn't think this would be the case, would we? Certainly not based on what we're hearing or even feeling ourselves. And this thought, this this um, uh, defeated kind of attitude about the truth of who God is, is crept into our own souls and we bring it into the church. We're no longer coming from a position of authority because we feel like, oh, maybe they're onto something. Maybe our truths are archaic. Maybe there was a spirit in which we were trying to, in this particular example, elevate men over women or not show them their equal honor as being a fellow heir of the grace of life, as the scripture says. <clears throat> if we could... Rebecca continues, if we could read the Gospels through first century eyes, Jesus' treatment of women would knock us to our knees. His longest recorded conversation, as we discussed last week, was with the Samaritan woman of ill repute. And this wasn't an isolated incident. Jesus repeatedly welcomed women that his contemporaries would have despised. And he go, she goes on to list example after example of all of her, his interactions with other women were meant to, to show them the kindness, the compassion, and, and if you will, sort of the equal footing of being a created daughter before the heavenly father. But if we operate in, an, in a gap of ignorance and don't know these things about the truth of who God is, we kind of get led around by the nose. We let culture bring us everywhere and we can no longer stand for truth because we don't know it and we don't operate in it. We need to mark this down that God will not move in our life. He will not move in our nation. He will not move in our church apart from truth. And it's the truth of who he is. At every encounter, he is always revealing more of who he is. This is why Jesus took this kind of time with this woman for her to really for it to to really seep into her heart for it to to go beyond just the words he was saying. But for her to wrestle with the fact this doesn't make sense. God is saying that he would take me as I am. Nobody does that. She needed that truth to sink in because it was on full display. That's what truth does is it aligns our worship. It allows us to be of of the, the count of the true worshipers because we have engaged him in truth. So first simple statement that is a truth is that God is the definition of truth. It's consistent with his character. It's consistent with the way he's conducted himself through all of history. But secondly, God is love. You ever notice that you and I won't really trust somebody's statement or version of the truth if we don't trust the person in general, I don't know if, you know, over the last year, we've had a lot of opinion flying around for whatever reason. Uh, people feel the need to share their opinion about everything. We've all become experts on everything. You ever find yourself at some point you disagreed with something, but somebody you like agrees with it. And you go, well, maybe the, you know, book's not closed on it yet. I could get, entertain that a little bit more. It's what we do. The, the value of the person delivering the statement or the information changes our opinion as to whether or not we would accept it or receive it. It's who we are because we, we care more about trusting the character of the person than even knowing if the facts are 100% accurate. God is love and you and I won't trust truth until we trust the source of truth. And that's what his love, his demonstration of love allows us to receive the truth of who he is because we know he's doing it for our good. And God's love is defined by his character. We don't know true love apart from who the Lord is. Hughes says it this way in, in a warning, if you will, about how we should be wrestling with the love of God. He says, it's my opinion that wrong thinking about God's love is the greatest source of unwitting idolatry and evangelical heresy in the church today. God's love. 
he says. Not only that, I think when we fail to understand God's love, we fail to understand the entirety of God. For God's love programs and controls all the rest of his attributes. What he's saying is, if all the things that we know about God, the attributes that are true about him, you know, for example, you know, he's all-knowing or he's all-powerful or that he is loving, all those things come from the place of his love. And he exercises all of those attributes from the position of love. Even as judgment? Absolutely. One of the most... uh, Often quoted passages of scripture, especially at weddings, it's always in weddings, is 1 Corinthians 13. People find great refreshment in a resetting of a definition, a biblical definition of love, because they come to these wedding scenarios with all kinds of bad experiences and poor definitions and all these things. And I think there's something grounding, something healthy and holy for people, even if they don't necessarily claim to be um, believers in God, but they are okay with it, or they've seen, they've heard this before, and they just, there's something refreshing about being reminded what love really looks like. And Paul wrote this chapter that we've dubbed the love chapter to make a point about all the things in our life that we pursue that we think are bigger than the most important things. This is what he says in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains. In other words, all the things that you and I are humanly attracted to, the things that we'd love to be able to say, we've experienced the power, the knowledge, all that sort of stuff. He goes, I could have all of that. And if it's void of love, I am nothing. Verse three, if I give away all that I have or I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. It is a fact of life that you and I can do a lot of things that are quote unquote right. And if they are devoid of love, they are useless. So what's the definition that Paul gives us? See if you can see Jesus in particular in his conversation with this woman in this description of love. Verse four, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. I think all of those words kind of sum up the same flow that what we've seen in people or in our, or in ourselves is that when we set out to wrap life around us and our wishes, we, we set up a kingdom to ourselves. We, we cling to it. We manipulate for it. We become arrogant or rude because we're admitting we feel like we're worth it. So we start to insist on our own way. And when things don't go that way, because they don't, we become irritable and resentful. Verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. That's really key, and I think particularly for us today. If I could force a little bit of application here, and I won't say all that's going through my mind on this, but if we are to rejoice at truth, it means even when truth is inconvenient to our position, even when truth is inconvenient to the things that we want to see happen in our life, that I would rather uphold truth than I would be caught celebrating wrongdoing because the wrongdoing is serving my purposes in the immediate. That's a tough place to be. But that's what love does. Verse 7, love bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Is this not Jesus? He did all of that right up until his death on the cross. Love, at least the true definition, the real explanation and demonstration of love from the Lord, verse 8 says, love never ends. The simplest definition I've heard about love beyond the depth of that description that we just read in 1 Corinthians, the simplest definition is simply doing the best for the one that you love. That is not logical, at least not in our experience. 
Love is supposed to be the things that others will recognize we've done for their good, that others will feel good about the fact that we love them, that it will be this obvious. Like, think about you parents, how the temptation has been on our, uh, in, our, in our hearts to be able to bless our children, to see the smile on their face, to see the joy of the spring in their step. And then we say, now I feel like I love them. But if I, if my simple definition holds true that it's to sim, to do the best for the one that you love, does that always put a smile on our kids' faces? No, it doesn't. Since God is the very definition of love, He is going to do what is best for us, not, not what is most desired by us. Please don't misunderstand that what I'm saying here is that God doesn't care about us being happy. And that all the good that he wants to do for us is just something we have to endure. Oh, it's good for me. I'm going to eat my vegetables. That, that as you watch people enjoying life, as I've sat and I've watched my children play or just enjoy warm weather or be on a swing set or something, and the joy that comes from a parent's heart to be able to say, these kids are living the life. How beautiful is that? Where did I get that from? Because I'm a good guy. Or because you're a good girl or anything like No, you got that because that's what your father sees when you're living life too. That he wants our joy to be wrapped up in him, to, to experience and enjoy his creation, to experience the, the relative safety sometimes that he provides us. But he also prepares us for the times where those things aren't available. And so he is going to do what is best for us, not what is most desired by us. If there is a greater purpose and some of those vegetables need to be eaten, then he is going to allow that to happen. He's going to enter into that process being a good parent. Because it's true of his character. It's consistent with his character. And he expects it to be the consistent conduct of his people. These are our marching orders. The love that you've been shown simply go out and show to others. Jesus is going to tell us when we stop and camp on it a little bit more in John chapter 13, that by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have this kind of love for each other. Our world is engaged in a tug of war between truth and love. One side thinks you have to just be brutally honest right now. The other side thinks you have to be passively loving as though they've cornered the market on the definition of th- these things. And so uh, if, you, if you seem to weigh one side or the other, then they throw you in a camp, you get a label, all these kinds of things. But the reality is Jesus is demonstrating at this chat by the well that you can be both truthful and compassionate at the same time. And that the, the one who is looking out for the best of the person that is, is being loved will engage in truthful discussions even though they're painful. This is a big deal to John, the apostle, who's written this text for us. And he continues to, if, if John were a songwriter, kind of like King David was in the Old Testament, he would be writing love songs constantly. John loves the theme of the love of God. And he wrote three small letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, very cleverly titled. And uh, as we get to the end of 1st John, in chapter 4, we're going to see this really helpful and healthy definition of what it looks like to have the love of God in our life and what our responsibility is. 1st John 4, beginning in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest or put on display among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or we could say the satisfaction or the payment offered for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, John says here, no one's really ever seen God. I I would say it maybe this way too. But if we love one another, God's love abides in us, becomes evident to those around us. It is manifest to those who are looking on because his love is perfected in us. Our love, our definition of love, our execution of love should look just like God's. What is 1 John 4 telling us? That God's love is initiating 
it acts first. Just take a little bit of inventory of your week. The one you just lived out. Lord, how many times did I show love first versus how many times was, was my kindness or my compassion a reaction to somebody starting that for me? The love of God goes in head first. It commits regardless of the potential response. We like to operate in what we call love in more safety kind of measures. I'm going to show this person love because I know they're going to receive it well and they're going to reciprocate and I'm expecting it. It's one of the dangers I found with the love languages book. Sorry to kind of rain down on that a little bit. But if you're familiar with that Christian classic, it built an expectation that if I do this right, if I love you appropriately, you're going to scratch my back, which is what I really need in life. There's a danger to that. The gospel said, I'm giving love at all costs and you may not pay me back. But because I'm doing what's best for you, I'm laying my life down anyway. And I'm going to do it first. I'm not testing the waters, seeing how much these people love me. Jesus wasn't well received, was he? It's an initiating love. It's a reproducing love because the text told us that whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And that's going to generate in our love for other people. Let me just, for way of example, just throw out a beef that I have <clears throat> right now. I've had it for several years because I drive around our, our city, our town and stuff, and it's kind of moderate in the sense of some things develop and other things get dilapidated and all this kind of stuff. And so whenever I see something getting zoned off for building and I see the excavator trucks coming in and I see concrete being poured and it's on these centers, you know, strips of road and stuff like that, I get a little excited that is it finally time for us to get the little slice of heaven that is known as Chick-fil-A? Or, or if maybe junk food's more your thing, because Chick-fil-A is just manna from heaven. It's not junk food. But if you, maybe uh, Krispy Kreme, I'd even take that. Something that we don't have in our area. But what do we always get, people? We get banks or gas stations. That's all we get. Like we needed another place to deposit the money we don't have. Or we needed another place to buy a $4 energy drink. Everything's a mini-mart with these gas stations. They're now called fill-up stations or something. They're not what used to be referred to as service stations so much because service meant they had garage bays. You go there and you have them look at your check engine light or you change your brakes or something like that. You have to leave your car with them for a time to get things done. But fill-up stations, the ones that are popping up all over the place, particularly near exits, are the ones where you're expected to spend minutes at a time complain about the cost of what you just spent on gas. Can I get an amen? And, and then move on. If you need to go in, great. They're going to overcharge you because it's, you're paying for the convenience and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and you're just meant to move on. Unfortunately, when we look at this idea that God's love is reproducing, there has been a lack of willingness in God's people over the decades. And, and this is not specific just to faith as a church, but, but all across our country that we have traded in a service station mindset of church for a fill-up station mindset of church, that I come in, get what I want, and move on out. I don't have time to be messing around with this, that, and the other thing. I'm going to ignore the engine light and everything. That's not your job is to point this out. And then those of us that have, have um, uh, been coming or we've been attending or something like that, we don't see the fact that these garage bays need to be open and that clunkers are going to come in. People with real issues and people with real challenges and their engine light's been on forever so much they just put masking tape over and you know who you are. To ignore it. And when are God's people going to say, it's on me to get the, the coveralls on and to expect to get some grease under my nails and get that car up on the lift and try to help diagnose what's wrong here and what is the gospel of Jesus Christ aiming to fix and address in these people's lives? Is it my responsibility to help or did we hire just a couple of professionals who are supposed to figure it all out? The fill-up station is, is one where we just come in, check out, move on. Service station means I expect to be here for a while and I expect to have a lot of other people putting their hands in places that are quite uncomfortable. That's the way it goes. 
This is what this woman allowed for Jesus to do is to expose the issues of her heart. She knew she had to stay a while, engage in this lengthy conversation as awful and uncomfortable as it was. It was the only way that was going to lead to hope. And Jesus was willing to have this conversation with her. God's love is initiating, it's reproducing, but it's also revealing of who he is. If we love the way God loves, people will see him, not us. His love has been made manifest, and since no one's ever seen God, they will see him because God abides in us. So what are we asking of the text? What are we asking of our time in God's word today? Would you be willing this week to engage in a heart exercise of reevaluating either the recent episodes in your life or just sort of the history of your life, the experiences and the difficulties and even some of the good things that have happened to reevaluate these things with a newer, fresher perspective of the truth of who God is? And and go through that difficult journey of allowing the spirit to examine your heart. Have I been thinking right things about God as I've been processing these things that have happened to me? Do I know what the word says about God's character enough that, that would point out the fact that maybe my feelings have not been consistent with what's right about God? Maybe secretly I've blamed him for the things that have happened. Maybe I've asked him why he couldn't help me avoid these things. All of those kinds of things. If we don't wrestle with the truth of who God is and that this comes from a place of his love, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that he sends these things just to have them happen to us, but we all come back to the place of, if you're God, how come you couldn't have prevented it? Are we willing to ask these questions to help us understand what's the truth about God and what would he be doing through it? Secondly, when it comes to the love of God, would you be willing to seek a specific way that you can act on a godly love, that you can engage in an initiating, reproducing, and God-revealing love to just one person this week? Maybe it's the obvious person. Maybe it's the person closest to you. And you've said, boy, I've gotten awfully comfortable with that person. I don't try as hard as like, like I used to. Or maybe it's someone you don't know that well. And this is a pathway to get to know them better. Is to share that kind of love with them. You know, it, it's not rocket science, is it? What we do and what we set our hearts to in terms of following the gospel of Jesus Christ makes everything change and it changes exponentially. So rarely though do we engage from our spirit, the core of who we are to pursue passionately the call from the gospel and make ourselves available to the Lord. And that's simply all he's asking us to do. As the worship team comes, I'm gonna ask you if you'd please stand and let's close our time in prayer and be uh, ready to lift up our voices to the Lord. We are going to sing a song of prayer and dedication, one that is of offering, Lord, these changes need to come from the core of me and only the Lord can change us from the inside out. Let's pray these things. Lord, we do thank you, God, again for the victorious example of this woman who uh, you had such compassion and tender heart for. And Lord, like so many other aspects of your word, we're able to draw from it different layers and just this inexhaustible resource of truth and an example of your love. So we pray, Lord, that we would continue to trust your words, trust the reality of who you are, no matter how much culture lies to us, no matter how much our experiences hurt or distort our view of you. May we cling to the the truth of who you are, been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ and penned for us on the pages of your word. Help us, Lord, to grow in that trust that your spirit begin to move in us and change us in the parts that we can't change ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.